Listen up, real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and agents. You're in the right place. Unlocking the secrets to real estate investing and entrepreneurship. Welcome to the Titanium Vault, hosted by RJ Bates III. Here's RJ. Hey guys, welcome to the Titanium Vault. I'm your host, RJ Bates. Today I'm sitting down with Greg Dickerson. Greg, how are you doing today, man? Doing good, RJ. How are you? Fantastic. Honored to have you on the show. Uh, well, for those that don't know here. who you Thank are you. and and know about your incredible story, uh, take a second to kind of introduce yourself and tell everybody what it is you do in real estate. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for the kind words. I, I appreciate you having me. But yeah, so I, I started out, you know, by accident back in 1997. Um, I was in the restaurant business and um, I, I was trying to get an addition built on my house and I couldn't get anybody to call me back. And uh, so I started talking to some friends and neighbors and they said, everybody's so busy, you can't get any, any work done. So where there's a problem, there's an opportunity. So I decided to set up a little um, you know, remodeling handyman company. So it was just me, my truck and my tools. It was 1997. And I went out my first project was 500 bucks. I built a little deck on the back of a restaurant so he could put a refrigerator on it. And <laughs> um, yeah, and just kind of grew it from there. So my first year we did 250,000, um, hired my first employee to work with me in the field. And uh, then I hired another one. Our second year we did uh, 750,000. And then I hired an office manager and I stepped into a supervisory role and third year, we did about a million two. Um, fourth year, we were the, one of the largest. Well, actually, we were the largest remodeling contractors in our area, had 20-something employees, uh, all in-house, had, you know, eight or nine trucks on the road, every tool you could think of. And uh, I think we did, you know, a couple of million in remodeling, which which was, you know, pretty good when your average job, I mean, that was hundreds of jobs. Right. And then I started, uh, I got into new construction, started building uh, spec houses, and uh, then we, you know, went from, I don't know, two and a half to seven and a half million to 12 million. And ultimately, seven years later, we were a $30 million company, one of the largest builders in the area. Uh, I had gotten out of remodeling, um, turned everybody into subcontractors and changed my business model and uh, started becoming profitable and uh, using everything that I was making in the building company to invest in real estate and develop real estate. So that's kind of my journey along the way. The first deal I ever did out of the gate and I'd owned houses. So I was a homeowner, but I didn't know you could like flip properties. I didn't know that, you know, real estate was a thing, right? This was back in, you know, 90, like I said, 97. Right. And I'd read a couple of books. I'd read Russ Whitney and I'd read, um, uh, I'd seen some Carlton sheet stuff, but I, you know, I thought it was all, you know, whatever. I just didn't buy into it. Right. But then a friend of mine who was a realtor came to me and said, Hey, I, I, I know, th I know of this lot that we can buy and you know, it's a hundred thousand dollars. And my dad has somebody who'll probably pay us 135,000 for it. He said, you put up the money, I'll do everything else and we'll split the profit. And I said, okay, it sounds reasonable. So we did it. You know, we made about 15,000 each in 30 days and and I thought, you know, wow, this is awesome. I was like, number one, is this legal? Can you do that? Can you buy a lot <laughs> this week and sell it next week and make, you know, $30,000 on it? So, uh, you know, once I kind of figured that out and, and, you know, got a little taste of it, I said, wow, this is great. So off to the races. And I started, you know, flipping lots. So my model back then as a builder would be I'd tie lots up and I'd flip them to my customers and then build them a house. And so I'd make 25, 30 grand on a lot and I'd make another 50 to 100,000 building my house. So uh, it was it was a pretty good little business model for a number of years until, you know, 2009 and 10 when you know, we all got put out of business as builders. But, 
you know, then I changed my business model at that point and started right. hiring builders to work for me and, and, uh, outsourcing everything. And I've kind of been doing it that way ever since. So that's my story in a nutshell, long and short of it. So the only two things I've ever done in my life are restaurants and construction. And I always, uh, when I was working in restaurants, I always had a little construction business on the side during the day. Um, you know, I got started in that in like 1984, 85, I was working in a restaurant and this guy was building an addition on it and he hired me to come clean up after him. And, uh, so I did, and I'm a hard worker and he took a liking to me and I started following him around and he was a commercial contractor and I started learning from him and doing different things. And then, you know, that was pre, uh, while I was in high school and then I joined the Navy right out of high school, went in the Navy, did my four years, got out and then kind of worked in restaurants and construction for, you know, four or five years until, 1997 when I started uh, that first company and I've been self-employed ever since doing, uh, you know, real estate full-time. Man, that's awesome. But your, your, your path to success is so similar to, to mine specifically. Um, I, I love hearing that because now I, I, I can follow the rest of your path and try to <laughs> achieve the same success you've had. Uh, I was also in the, the restaurant industry before I found my, my entrepreneurial uh, journey. Um, I just have to ask, uh, wh- what kind of restaurant was it? If you tell me pizza, I'm going to flip out. So that was my first job in high school, making and delivering pizzas. And, uh, <laughs> oh no, you've listened yeah. to the podcast. You're making all this up. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, I, you know, I've listened, but I haven't heard that part of the story. But, yeah, man. Uh, but yeah, I'm telling you, that was my first job making and delivering pizzas. Um, and then I went from there to full service bussing tables, washing dishes, you know, for a private restaurant owner. And then I worked for Bennigan's for a while and yeah. And then uh, Lone Star Steakhouses right before I moved uh, to the Outer Banks in 97 of North Carolina. And that's where I started my company, but yeah, making and delivering that's, pizza. That's where that's I started. So funny, man. My, uh, I, for those that have heard the story before, I apologize. I'm going to share it again because we do have new listeners every week. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, football season ends my senior year of high school and, uh, my mom wakes me up at eight o'clock the, the following Saturday and says, football's over. Uh, don't come home until you have a job. And my mom, when she says things like that, she's serious. Like she actually meant like, don't come home until you have a job. And so I, I went around and, you know, I'm going to every business that's close to the house, you know, saying, Hey, I need a job. And they're like, fill out this application. And, you know, so I did that through like the first half of the day. And then finally I started getting nervous because I'm like, I'm ready to go home. And I'm like, I'm not, these people are not interested in hiring me. They're, they're interested in me filling out a piece of paper and then looking at that piece of paper and calling me back, you know? And so I walked into Pizza Hut and I said, Hey, I, I need a job. And the manager, it was the general manager. He said, okay, fill out this application. And I said, Clyde, um, my mom's not going to let me come home tonight if i don't get a job and i will do whatever it takes to get a job right now and he kind of laughed and so he interviewed me on the spot and i got a job as a delivery driver at 18 years old and uh i made far too much money as an 18 year old um mom and dad did not catch that i had a gas card for about six months so as a delivery (laughs) driver i wasn't paying for any gas for about six months but uh yeah man that that was uh, my only job for, for quite a while until I, I pretty much became an entrepreneur. And uh, I also became a, a remodeler or a contractor. 
And then even when I found out about real estate, I did the same thing that you were doing where it was, I was wholesaling houses and I had this great idea, make, you know, 10, 12, $15,000 wholesale fee up front and then be the contractor on the back end. Right. And do the remodel. Yeah. And, uh, I just, I made the decision, Hey, I suck as being a contractor. I'm really good at real estate and finding good deals. Let's just stop doing the remodeling on the back end and let's just focus on wholesaling. And, uh, that's kind of what's led us to, to where we are today. So that's, that's crazy, man. Our, our stories are almost, uh, pretty close together, pretty similar. There. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's pretty awesome. And uh, yeah. did you get a real estate license? I did not. I did not. Yeah. But my partner, Cassie, she did. Um, and so she's the she's the realtor and, and I'm the pseudo investor. So that's how we've kind of separated ourselves within the business. So anytime I go to, you know, an off market lead or anything like that, I don't have to disclose, hey, I'm a licensed realtor. You know, I can just be the person trying to solve their problem without having to disclose that information. But if they yeah. want to deal with a the realtor, then she can step in and help them. So, yeah. And that's a big debate. And I, I got my license back in 2000, 2001, somewhere around there after I'd paid my broker about 200 grand one year selling spec houses for me and, and doing other deals. I right. said, yeah, I'm getting my license. So I got it just mainly. Um, and I was in a state where it was a broker state. So you take your real estate test and you take your broker's test and you're a broker. So you could have your own firm. Right. So, um, you know, I had a construction company and then I just added a real estate arm and I had six or seven agents working for me and, and all that. And again, where I was, it was mostly new construction infill. So I wasn't doing flipping. I wasn't dealing with homeowners, but I was dealing with lot owners. So I would farm vacant lots and I would, I would, you know, go after vacant land. Like, you know, everybody goes after houses to flip. So I was just flipping lots instead of houses. So the conversation would be just like you just said, it, you know, when I called somebody up about their lot, Hey, I'm a real estate broker, you know, your lot's worth X on the retail market, you know, but I'm, I'm here, I can pay you cash and close in a week. And it, you know, you can get more for it if you list it, but you know, they know what that's like and it's going right. to take longer. So those are the conversations you got to have. But um, you know, I found for me, people trusted me more because I was a builder and a, and a realtor, you know, had that license mm -hmm. um, versus just being somebody coming in, especially nowadays, you know, they're, everybody's trying to be a wholesaler, right? So you got a lot of people that aren't quite, you know, operating above board and right. um, owners are a little suspicious when they have, you know, 50 pieces of mail coming in their mailbox and they call, you know, a dozen different people and, you know, only one calls them back. You know, they, they're a little bit suspicious these days of the whole wholesaling thing. And, yep. and um, you know, I explained to them what's going on. It's a legitimate business. And, you know, there's people that do it right and there's people that don't. And, uh, you know, and, you know, so I've never had a problem with having a real estate license, but some people, you know, some people do, some don't. And it's whatever, you know, whatever works for you. But so I know uh, you work in multiple states. So how have you made that work? Because, you know, have you been able to do like an equivalency test to, to get your license in the multiple states? Or did you eventually just move away from that model and have actual realtors underneath you? So I was in one state for 14 years as a builder realtor down in the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which is a coastal area off the coast of North Carolina, kind of like Corpus Christi off of the coast of Texas. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, resort rental home market. So that's that's where I, you know, I kind of grew up in the business and, and did my first deals. So um, and then I had some contacts in Virginia and, you know, Virginia is huge from from North Carolina up into northern Virginia around D.C., so it does reciprocate to Virginia. So I got my license in Virginia, uh, but that's it. It's just, that's just the two states I have a license in. And, and if I do anything in another state, I just use a local broker gotcha. uh, in those states to, to do the stuff for me. And if it's a big transaction, uh, you know, on the commercial side, every state has, you know, an exclusion where 
um, you know, you can get a provisional license if you're doing a huge commercial transaction. Um, you know, most states have something like that. So, okay. uh, so that's kind of how it works. I don't really do residential, um, like single family homes outside of my areas. Uh, if I'm going you know, across state lines, it's usually for bigger commercial deals. And, you know, like we're doing some hotel development, some multifamily development, and, and it's usually big lot transactions is, is what it is. And I use the, I use the commission on my end as equity, you know, to, to go into the deal and, and fund yep. the upfront startup cost of the project. So it comes in handy. You know what? You, previously, before I asked that question, you you brought up something that I want to address, which is, you know, you a homeowner, a motivated seller, receives you know a dozen to two dozen postcards, letters, forms of marketing, and you know you brought up the fact that they call twelve of them and only one answers the phone. Right. I mean, you've been in this business for for a long time. Um, what do you think that is? I mean, is that because there's so many people that are trying to do this that aren't necessarily full time and, and it's just, they're, they're at their job or do they, what do you think is the underlying issue there? Because it is an issue. I mean, I, I still, to this day, talk to, to sellers and they're like, you know, how do I know this isn't a scam? And, you know, here in Texas, we call it the yellow letter lottery, where it's like, you know, we walk in the house and there's 50 letters sitting on the desk and it's like, why did you call us? And they're like, we literally just like randomly picked 10 to call. So uh, what, do you, what do you think the reason is that, that inve- as investors, people that listen to this podcast are not capitalizing on those opportunities and answering the phone? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. So part of it is what you said. A lot, a lot of people have full-time jobs and, you know, they think they can just set up a Google voice number and that's going to be the magic bullet. And I'll tell you, you know, that may work, but for most people it doesn't. So that's part of it. Part of it is people working full-time or doing other things and they set up the Google voice. The other part of it is people just, you know, almost nobody answers their phone anymore because there's so much robocall going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but the biggest thing is fear. The biggest reason that investors will spend thousands of dollars marketing and not answer the phone is because they're actually afraid to talk to the sellers. They're scared. And, you know, bandit signs are the same thing, man. I'll call bandit signs, you know, all the time just to see, you know, who's, who's out there, what they're doing. They never get answered. They won't, they won't answer. I'll leave a message Hey, I'm a cash buyer. Do you have any deals? Mm -hmm. You know, I'd love to network with you. I never, ever get a call back. What's crazy about that is not only are you a cash buyer, you're like one of the most ideal cash buyers because you buy lots, which are hard to sell, but it's very easy when you send out direct mail. I mean, dude, you will get calls from everywhere that's like, um, I don't want to sell my house, but I do own this lot over here that got passed down to me from grandma and I don't know what to do because I'm just paying property taxes on it. You're the guy that buys that stuff. Exactly. Or my uncle Harry has a shopping center. He wants to sell, doesn't know what to do with it. Or our family has this hundred acres of land and we have no clue what to do with it. You know, so I get those all the time and I I try to network with wholesalers and, and just tell them, Hey, if if you come across anything, you know, if it's a house in my price category, you know, I'll do it, um, you know, or land or commercial or whatever, but yeah, they don't answer the phone. And, you know, I'm telling you, man, I've seen people spend, you know, five, 10 grand on marketing and not answer the phone. And this, you know, internet is the same way. And, you know, real estate's a contact sport. And I've seen it in agents. It's not just investors. It's agents as well. Real estate agents um, will do the same thing. And 
you know, so will commercial real estate brokers. They'll mm-hmm. do the exact same thing. They don't answer the phone. They won't return phone calls. And, you know, it's just people, I don't know, some people are just afraid to talk to people and they're afraid to talk to sellers. And, you know, it's that resistance. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing. Fear is a funny thing, right? Fear is, fear is a real thing. You know, fear will convince you that you can't do something and it will stop you. It's like a living, breathing, real thing. And a lot of people just, they just buy into that instead of realizing, man, it's just resistance and it's natural resistance until you break through it and, and just, you know, do that first deal or make that first phone call or talk to that first seller. And, um, you know, I was very lucky. One of the other jobs. So as a kid, I'm a natural born entrepreneur, right? I used to go door to door, knocking on doors to cut people's grass, rake their leaves. No way. My oh, first yeah. company was B&B Landscaping when I was a freshman in high school, man. Yeah, so you know, you knock on yeah. doors, right? You see a yard that needs cutting, you stop, you knock on the doors. Hey, I'll cut your grass for 20 bucks, you know, yeah. whatever. And so that's how we grew up and, and you know, going door to door. And then I had a job, you know, telephone sales one time before the pizza thing. And, you know, I was calling for the fraternal order of police. Didn't, you know, I thought they were a legitimate organization. And you know, I think they were, but, uh, you know, so I mean, so I grew up in the world of cold calling and door knocking. And, uh, so I'm, I'm not afraid to talk to people and I enjoy it. And I think, I don't know what it is. People get afraid to talk to sellers. They're, they're just afraid. And some people are upset, you know, but if you're doing outbound marketing or inbound marketing, I should say, and you're mailing and you're doing internet leads and things like that, man, it's, it's, those people are calling you, they're reaching out and speed to lead. You know, it's just like real estate, 90%, 95% of the customers will do business with the first realtor that they come in contact with. And it's the same daggone thing. People will spend thousands of dollars on Zillow, you know, generating and buying Zillow leads, and they will not answer the phone and they won't call those people back. It's amazing. Yep. And you know what? You you and I were both chatting about before the interview about Don Costa. And I, you know, I had the privilege of interviewing him yesterday for Titanium Tuesdays. And Don said in 2018, he did 197 deals. 40% 40% of his business came from follow-ups. Right. And to think about that, I mean, th- that is unbelievable. I mean, think about how different his business would have been if he was just not following up with leads and talking to people like you're talking about. I get direct mail all the time from different properties that we own. And, I, you know, I just got a couple of letters on a sixplex that I own here in Dallas. And, we just finished remodeling it and and we're waiting on some inspections and then we're going to get it occupied. And I'm not in love with this sixplex. This is not something that I I bought with the intentions of owning forever. And so I get a couple of letters and I'm thinking to myself, hmm, I'm going to call them and tell them the the status. The status is it's completely remodeled. It's going to pass inspections. We'll have tenants in place. I want three hundred thousand dollars for this and it will rent for forty five hundred a month. That's a pretty good deal, right? Yeah. So I call and one of them doesn't answer, never calls me back. The other one does answer. She says, okay, do you know how much you want for it? Said $300,000. She says her next question, what would be the lowest amount you would take? (laughs) My, I don't know who gave you this script, but the lowest I'll take is 310,000. Yeah, it went up. And she said, you just said you want 300000 for it. And I said, right, this is called negotiations. Your first question to me after I said 300000 was not an offer, but how low would I go? So I went up. And she goes, okay, okay. She goes, that's good. I'm going to have to use that one. 
Um, okay, let me look at this, and then I'm going to call you back and tell you how much to offer, or I can offer. I said, okay, and I have not heard from her since. Right, right. This is an uh, an epidemic across real estate investing, and so uh, and agents, and not just investing, it, yeah, real I mean, estate it, agents. It's it's everybody, and you know, Don's awesome. I love Don. You yeah, know, and uh, you know, the last time he and I talked, you know, uh, he was talking about that goal of three hundred transactions, and I said, mm-hmm. well, Don, I said I want three hundred one. I want you to break three hundred. Let's let's put down three hundred one. <laughs> so be interesting to see where he goes. And I know he's trying some new markets out, you know, this year and everything yep. and doing the virtual wholesaling thing. So, um, and actually I think he's coming out with something soon on that, you know, uh, yeah. uh how to enter a new market. But, but anyways, you know, on that, on that note, you know, of follow-up. So I've bought deals where people followed up with me and I'm guilty of it. Right. So, you know, Don and I talked specifically about that, but I get back to that in a second, but I've bought deals two years down the road where somebody I made an offer to, you know, two years prior calls me up, says, Hey, I'm ready to sell now. Um, you know, and I'd, I'd looked up what the property was worth and just because of market conditions or whatever, I ended up buying it for half of what I offered, offered them, you know, two years ago, right. um, on a couple of times. So it's funny how sometimes sellers will follow up with you, you know, maybe it's just not the right time, you know, whatever, but you know, follow up and follow through, man, follow up is, is a hundred percent of the game. And, you know, the key to the business is like you said, the yellow letter lottery, it's it's being in front of them when they're ready to make a transaction, when they're ready to do something, when they're ready to sell. You just never know when that time is going to be. Somebody may not be motivated today or tomorrow or next week or next month, but they might be two years from now. They might be three years from now. So, you know, and it's a difficult thing. If you've got a big list like, you know, a Don Costa or somebody like that that's spending $100,000, you know, a quarter or you know, 50, 60,000 a month. I and mean, that's a lot of mail going out. So mm-hmm. it's a huge list to keep track of, but the technology today, you can do it. And that's what Don and I were talking about it, you know, cause he doesn't really scrub his list. He just kind of does his thing for the year. Right. And then he gets a new list the next year. And, and I said, you know, if you really want to rein in your, your follow-up and really get scientific about what's working and what's not, you know, is you really want to scrub that list so that you remove the people that you've contacted, you put them on your follow-up queue so you got your deals, they're off the list. You got your follow-ups, they're off the list. And then you've got your return mail. And your return mail is the list you should skip trace and cold call. That's hugely effective because you mm-hmm. know a lot of those people have moved or changed your address. Whatever happens, they're not going to get that mail. But if you call them, you know, uh, that usually indicates they've left the property, which could be a vacant property. And you and I know the gold in this business yeah. are vacant property. Yeah, no, you know? I was going to say return mail is the gold. I mean – right. You know, I know a lot of investors that actually just do direct mail so they can get the the return mail. And now they know this is my list. Like whatever right. I get over here, you know, five, six, ten deals. Okay, that's that's bonus. But now I know who's really motivated. Because like you said, something's happened. Either the property's vacant, you know, they've moved you know, tax to link, whatever, some, some underlying issue is now there where they, you can almost assure yourself that they want to sell that property. So, uh, that is a, a huge nugget right there for everybody that does direct mail. Um, cause honestly, man, when you sit in rooms with investors and you ask them, what do you do with your return mail? A lot of times people aren't doing anything with it. Yeah, they throw it in the trash. They don't right. They're like, oh, list. okay, you well, know, that's not going to work. Throw it in the trash. No, yeah, that's yeah. you're throwing your gold in the trash, so don't do that. 
Well, you know, I appreciate you kind of rabbit trolling there and talking about marketing, but I, I want to dive into because you, you've been a contractor yourself. You've been d- doing development for all these years. I know you have some huge tips for investors that are either doing developments or flips themselves on how to handle contractors and and handle the the paying and the managing of contractors. So I kind of want to open that up to you and kind of let you take the reins on for those that are consider themselves investors, but maybe not great on the contracting side of things. What are some tips that you have for how you can better control that process? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, before we transition to that, all that stuff we talked about on marketing, by the way, works on every asset class. It works on residential, it works on land, it works on commercial, multifamily, every single asset class, the same principles apply. A little different on the commercial and the bigger deals, a little different marketing piece, but all the same principles. So anyways, that, that works for everything. But yeah, right. So the first thing about contractors is you and I have been one, right? So we know, we know we've been in those shoes is um, understanding, you know, where they're coming from and what they're dealing with. Right. So it's very difficult right now for them to get labor, you know, materials aren't perfect, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of moving parts out there, but the biggest thing is you got to have a clearly defined scope of work. Now this goes in your business or in your contractor's business. So we're all a team, right? So I take that organization and I flip it upside down. So the, the owner, the CEO usually has that pyramid where he's at top and then he's got a project manager and office manager and sales assistants and all the way down to everybody who's in the field at the bottom, right? I've always flipped that pyramid upside down where my job is to serve everybody else in the organization. I have to give them what they need to be successful. That is my sole purpose in life is to keep people busy and give them what they need to succeed. So what that means is I've got to provide clear direction in no uncertain terms exactly what I expect and when, and then I've got to measure that performance and hold people accountable. That's my job as a leader. I'm at the bottom of that pile. So when you look at it from that perspective and realize that the people in the field, your contractors are your partners, right? They're there to get something done so that everybody can have a successful outcome. So when you think of terms of, I've got to give them everything they need to succeed and help them be more profitable in their business as well, um, everybody wins. So it starts with a clearly defined expectation, which is a scope of work for a contractor. Exactly everything you need, exactly what you need, how you want it done, when you want it done. You measure that performance, you hold them accountable. They either did it or they didn't. And, you know, then you then you go back to if you don't get the result you're looking for. Well, how come did I give them everything they needed? Tools, training system and support to be successful, clear direction in no uncertain terms, exactly what's expected and when or did I not? And then that's an easy fix. If you didn't, you just fix it. If they're not performing and they're not getting it done, then you either have a can't do or you have a won't do. And if you got a won't do, you get rid of them. If you got a can't do, then you retrain them, redirect them and you help them be successful and, and help figure out what's going on. But so a clearly defined scope of work. The other thing is most areas, most contractors uh, or most investors, you're kind of doing the same thing over and over. So you can you can get a clearly defined spec list of all your selections, all your finishes, the way you want things done, you know, your procedures, you know, how you want a window flashed, how you want a roof, how you want your roofing done and flashed, how you want a door installed, you know, how you want your cabinets set, you know, how you want your countertops done, what's the overhang, what's the thickness, you know, all these different things. You know, if you're really truly good at your craft and you're an operator and you know what you're doing, 
you know, there's systems for the business, right? So we'll create systems. Most people will create systems in their business for the marketing side, for the acquisitions side, for lead follow-up, but they forget the systems on the construction side. Mm -hmm. That is the most critical and important side of the business. So if you just write down and create spec sheets for everything that you want, standards uh, and practices for everything that you expect, a finish list in all of those selections, and you give that to your contractor, and let them do it turnkey, you'll eliminate 90% of your problems right out of the gate. So that's what it starts with is, is just a clear defined scope of work priced out by the line item so that everybody knows exactly what everything costs. You do a uh, what's called a GMP contract, guaranteed maximum price contract from your contractor. We're pros, they're pros. We know what things are going to cost. There's no ambiguity in the business unless you're gutting something and you find something in the wall. Pretty much everything can be nailed down to a fixed price cost, every single line item. So you just get real detailed. You just make a list. You line item everything out. You put a number to it. Everybody agrees on it. And then you don't pay them till they're done. You never pay a contractor upfront for anything. You know, if they're a good contractor, they should be able to get, uh, you know, have an account or a credit card to get the materials to get started. And I will pay somebody if they're starting out until we develop a relationship, if it's new, a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't know anybody. They don't know me. You know, they're not going to do something without me paying them. I say, look, pay them the day they're done, you know, pay them at the end of the day, as long as they're complete, do not pay for work. That's not complete because you've got no leverage, even over good contractors. They could be great contractors. You could be good friends, but if they don't have something holding them accountable to finish that task, they're going to put it on the back burner and go for what the next big payday is. Right. Um, so I don't do deposits. You got to finish the job, but I will pay you as soon as you're done. Um, and, you know, if it's somebody new, you can pay them on a daily basis. Typically, I pay every week and, uh, you know, just make sure the work is done and it's inspected and everybody signs off on it and, and you're good to go. So those are the two biggest things to eliminate problems with with contractors. So let's talk about the, the payment schedule there. Um, are you paying a like weekly percentage or are you paying on okay they completed drywall and paint so now i will pay you for drywall and paint yeah so i do everything turnkey so everything has a line item <clears throat> so okay. most of my jobs you know on this on the on the bigger ones you know they may only have one or two draws because i've got good relationships with you know some guys that can carry the job pretty far um, so typically they'll submit a draw for what they've completed. The roofing's done, the painting's done, the cabinets are in, the drywall's done, you know, those types of things. If it's a small job and it's just a cosmetic, they just bill me when they're done. Um, if it's a new construction house, then, uh, it's typically, you know, milestones. You have your site work and your foundation and your framing, multiple floors of framing, you know, roofing, siding, windows, doors. So there's a, uh, you know, same kind of thing there where, as each line item is complete, you know, we'll pay for that. Mechanicals are a little different because you have a rough in and a trim out. So typically most guys will bill 60% on the rough in, 40% on the trim out, uh, those types of things. And then when you're in commercial projects, big projects, like, a, you know, I've got a couple of $25 million hotel projects, you know, those contractors are billing monthly um, on a percentage of completion of the job, which is agreed to by the architects. They approve the, the, the payments and agreed to by the, by the lenders. So that's a different animal altogether in terms of how those, those are released. And, and like I said, there's a different layer of accountability there with the, you know, with the accountants. The other thing that's really important that I do, especially if it's a newer contractor, uh, is I get lien waivers from everybody. Okay. Yep. So, so when I hire my general contractor, I get a lien waiver from him before I give him a check saying 
that he's agreed to be paid and he's paid all of his suppliers and vendors. So he's certifying that everybody else is paid. And I tell him, look, go get lien waivers from your people so that, you know, nobody can claim, you know, anything. So lien waivers are, are very important. And then, of course, the final thing is insurance. You want to make sure that your, your contractor has the proper workman's comp and general liability. A lot of people, you know, let the general liability thing pass. But, you know, you got to understand how things work. You know, if your contractor doesn't have general liability, you know, they're going to come after you next because you're the property owner. And mm -hmm. if you don't have the right kind of insurance on that property, you know, you, you, you know, you can end up getting yourself in trouble and you're depending on how you're holding that asset. Um, if you're holding it in your company, then come after your company. So I always set up each individual project in an LLC separately um, so that they're not, you know, that there's nothing else that can be attached to that LLC. Now, if you're doing a bunch of single family homes, you can't really do that, but you can have an LLC that just holds the property and right. that's all it does. Um, you know, it doesn't affect cash flow in other areas. And if you're wholesaling, you know, that doesn't really matter anyway. So it's just, it's just, you know, contract transactional business. So, uh, so anyways, that's, that's how I deal with that. Yeah. And all those are, are really good tips, especially on that, the asset protection side of things. And, you know, going back to the, the payment, um, the, the structure that we have, you know, adopted here at titanium is contractors have to. Uh, submit. It, it's similar to what Don does. So if you've listened to the Flip Talk podcast, it's similar to that. But um, they have to provide a an invoice to us saying, okay, this is completed. Um, and, and every different branch has a different day. It's either Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. So let's just say by Monday morning, we have to have the invoice that says we've completed roof drywall paint and we need, you know, $12,000. Okay, we now go inspect that. Okay, it's done their check is ready for pickup that Friday and they cannot get the check until they sign a lien waiver. So when they come to pick up the check, sign the lien waiver, we now have a paid invoice, lien waiver, they get their check and it's done. Um, if you've ever, you know, borrowed money from private money lenders or hard money lenders that don't release, they escrow the, the rehab. That's also why we do that because a lot of times those lenders will not release those payments until they see a paid invoice and a uh, lien release and so uh, all those things that's that's just kind of like learning from people that are smarter than you you know if a hard money lender will not release the money without those items there's probably a good reason for that so you should adopt that within your own business as well um, even if you're not using hard money um, and so those are kind of just the little things that we've done um, sounds like you're you're right on track with the same things. Um, even in these large, you know, twenty five million dollar developments that you're doing, you're you're doing pretty similar. It's just larger draws, and it's on a monthly basis. But the lenders have to approve it, and the architects have to approve it. And you know, sounds like you you've kind of adopted the same schedule there. So um, it is, appreciate. It is, yeah, and one of the tricks that I did was well, not a trick, but when you're doing a lot of volume and bigger projects. Um, and you have contractors that you've worked with for a while. So again, I do everything turnkey outsource. So I'm not, I'm not buying materials direct. I'm not going to Home Depot. I'm not paying lumber yards. I let all my contractors supply all of the materials. I give them what I want and they go get it, they buy it. So they take care of their accounts. So it's very simple. I got one check I'm writing to each sub, that's it. I'm not paying vendors and this and that and you know, fronting the materials. But mine would be you turn your bill in by this Friday complete so that we have all next week to inspect it you get paid the following friday but you got to be done 
by this Friday or the weekend, you know, I'd let them go, you know, over the weekend if somebody wants to work the weekend. Uh, but that's how we did it. So it's kind of similar. You know, you were just going Monday to Friday. We were going this week to next week. So, right. uh, same kind of thing. So it sounds to me, though, on the material side of things, you're saying that you need to have kind of a formula for if you're flipping a bunch of $200,000 homes, you need to have a formula for what that looks like on the material side of things. Uh, what about the people that are, are listening to this and saying, but I want to play HGTV and I want to pick out all the pretty tile and the, the granite and make each house individual and pretty. Are you saying to scale, you have to not adopt that and you have to have kind of a, a system that you go to and have all your materials kind of templated out? Yeah, if you want to scale and automate and your goal is volume, absolutely. You got to do the same thing in in every house. Um, you know, that's really the only only real way to do it. Now you can develop packages. So, um, you know, I've done that as well where I've had different packages so you can have a couple of different things. But if you, you know, and if you want to do custom, that's great. Then then you're just doing custom and you you're going to be limited to the amount of time that individual has to make those selections. But if you're doing custom and you still want to pick things out, you know, that's great. People love to do that. My wife likes to do it. So, you know, no problem at all, but make sure that you get that documented and you get the, uh, you know, you get what's called, it's called a submittal. You get that submittal from the vendor of all the tile, what bathroom it goes in, how it's laid, what the grout is, you know, tile is a big one, right? Mm -hmm. And make sure you show up to check that tile and that grout before it's done. Because, you know, many times they'll put the wrong tile in the wrong bathroom, the wrong grout with the wrong tile. So, you know, you got to have somebody on top of that stuff to make sure it's how you want it. But there's nothing wrong with doing that. You just need to make sure that you get that that cut sheet, that submittal sheet of your light fixtures, your plumbing fixtures, your tile, your paint colors, you know, all of that stuff so that your contractor has it in advance. So go pick that stuff out in advance while he's putting together the rest of his numbers so that everybody can have a clear understanding of what's involved and what it takes because you know different kinds of tiles require different kinds of uh prep methods you know different cabinets have to have to be set different ways and require different things so you know you just want to try to get as much of that done in advance so that there's no surprises and change orders on the back end but yes if you want to scale come up with two or three or four different packages so that you can so that that contractor knows what that package is your vendors know what your package is and you just send it off to them for this house and that house and this house and you know, that's how you scale. And that's why you see national and regional home builders, you know, they have three or four different models, right? Same kind of thing. Um, you know, if you want to know how to scale a business and flipping, just go look at what, you know, I don't know who your big builders are, but Ryan Holmes and Sentex and Pulte, right. and, you know, Toll Brothers, the guys that are doing 15 to 50,000 houses a year, go look at what they do and how they do it. And, and there's a reason. And that's all you got to do is pattern yourself after them. And, and you've got you've got volume. And that's how they do it. You walk into a home that they're doing in a neighborhood. You got plan A, B, and C. You got package A, B, and C. And, and really, that's it. Now, you can customize it, but you're going to pay for it. But, um, yeah, so that's how you do that. So my last question for you before we wrap up is, is, you know, a lot of our followers and listeners are people that are mainly in the single family realm, but you know, maybe they've achieved a certain level of success and, you know, there's a big trend happening right now where everybody's wanting to move to the commercial space, either multifamily or, or even like the small strip centers and things like that. You come from this development background where you're even developing some of those assets themselves. What advice would you give to someone who's currently in single family 
if they want to expand to the development side of things, what are some of the tips that you could give to someone to make that that leap? So, you know, the fundamentals are the same. Real estate is real estate across asset classes. So all of the same principles apply. Location is first and foremost. You know, income is the second thing. You know, when you get into commercial properties, mostly they're valued on the income. There are some rare instances where the location out, you know, outweighs the uh, the income, you know, if you're in Dallas, Fort Worth and you're downtown, that land's going to be a lot more expensive than if you're in the suburbs and, you know, some sort of a regional center, you know, outside of the, the downtown area. Um, so so fundamentals are important. You, you need to educate yourself because there's different kinds of assets. You know, there's different classes of the different kinds of assets and there's different, you know, cap rates that things trade at. Um, there's different, you know, nuances and, and um tricks of the trade that you need to know on the commercial side and just uh, things in general. But, you know, all the fundamentals are the same. You just got to get educated and you got to be patient on the commercial side. Things take longer. The deals are bigger. If it's a development deal, it's going to take longer to get it out of the pipeline. Um, if it's an existing asset, then, you know, you just got to decide on what you're looking for. Are you buying income or you buying value add? Uh, you know, uh, I so know. Just in, kinda... I know in multifamily, you know, you have like a sponsor that could come on and help you. Is that is there a similar type um, a way to structure a deal on the development side of things where you can have a, a pseudo sponsor or co-signer or a mentor that can kind of you can maybe bring bring the the lot or the deal itself and and instead of wholesaling it or selling it you could uh be a part attached to the back-end equity side of things is that common in development or is that kind of just strictly for the multifamily space no no you can do the exact same thing in development you can syndicate that and so if you're just starting out scratch and you want to get into it and you don't have anything other than a desire you know then you're going to need something you got to bring something to the table so if you've got cash that you want to invest, you want to get involved in a development deal, then you can you can seek those out. So there's there's a number of ways to do it. One is, you know, find a mentor to help you get started, um, uh, you, you know, and coach you along the way. I do some of that consulting and coaching. Uh, there's also what's called fee developers. And I do some of that as well. So let's say you have a piece of land. You don't know what to do with it. You want to develop it. Uh, then you come in, you hire somebody like me for a fee and I help you. I help you put it all together, including syndicating it if that's what you need to do. And, um, you know, the other thing would be to partner with somebody. So just like multifamily, you got to bring something to the table. You've either got a really good deal or you've got capital to invest, um, you, you know, or you can you can go to work with or for somebody who's doing those types of things. But again, um, you know, you got to bring something to the table because developers are sophisticated. That's that's really the big difference. Most developers are sophisticated. So you're not going to be able to wholesale something to a developer because they're just going to wait you out. You know, they're going to know you can't close and they're just going to wait. And then when you're out of the way, then they'll come they'll come scoop it up. So you've got to have control of a property. You're not going to be able to just know that something's for sale and say, tell a developer, hey, this is for sale and expect to get paid. That just isn't going to work. Um, you know, you got to have control of it. You got to have an inside track um, or you got to have cash to invest or something like that. So you can get started all of those ways, but there has to be something really unique um, and and really uh, interesting or proprietary that you have to offer, you know, to be able to bring that to a tape to the table, whether it's cash or, or control of a great property or something like that. Awesome, man. Well, Greg, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to sit down with us, man. Uh, it, that was, uh, 
you covered a lot of topics there. I, I don't think we anticipated talking about delivering pizzas and mowing yards, but we we covered that uh, <laughs> marketing and and then also you know follow ups, how that's key, how to handle contractors, and then also if you want to move from the single family realm to to development. So, um, thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Yeah, absolutely, I enjoyed it, and uh, uh, it was great uh, hearing your story as well. Yeah. All right, guys, that's our episode for this week. Uh, please, wherever you're listening to this, please leave a five-star review for us. That's what helps us get our, our word and our message out to more listeners. And uh, Greg, thank you so much again, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks so much for listening to the Titanium Vault with your host, R.J. Bates III. For more info and to stay up to date, visit www.podcast.thetitaniumvault.com and on facebook.com slash thetitaniumvault. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time on the Titanium Vault. Titanium Vault.